We are in the Word of God, in the Gospel of Genesis. I hope you're hungry. We've got a feast today. Um, Micah, could you make sure that the effects are off this mic so I don't sound like I'm trying to be like, Moses. What's that? They're not on, really? That's an angelic thing then, is it? All right, <clears throat> so... All right, open up your, your, those beautiful books in front of you or flip in your apps or whatever. If you don't have one, the lovely and beautiful and talented Suzanne Holiday would love to bring you one. I don't say that about everyone. It's that, that girl I've just happened to be married to for, 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 I almost said 42 years, for 22 years. Yeah, for 22 years. So um, with that in mind, open them up to the Gospel of Genesis chapter 45, please. What a fun text to be in. If you remember, we... (coughs) Excuse me, we didn't do that, I just did it. But if you remember, we kind of left on the cliffhanger where (coughs) it was like some form of soap opera. Joseph said, I'm Joseph, dun, dun, dun. And then we left right there with everyone agasp. (laughs) And so that's where we pick it up. (coughs) Read along with me. Go ahead and stand with me, if you would, as we read the word. Um, because you're going to be sitting long enough. Maybe we'll make you stand in the middle of it all like a seventh inning stretch, which makes no sense here anyways. Chapter 45, verse 1 says, Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, because he speaks another language than these other guys. He's speaking Egyptian, and that's translated, make everyone go out from me. And these poor brothers of his have no clue what he's saying at the moment, except everyone runs out and what fun that would be. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And then he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Does my father still live? His brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. You would be too. Joseph said to his brothers, Please come near to me. So they came near, and then he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. But now, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years, the famine has been in the land. And there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you, before you, to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God had made me Lord. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me. You and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks with you. 
So you shall tell my father and all my glory in Egypt, of all my glory in Egypt, and of all that you have seen. And you shall hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell down on his, bro- on his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after all that, his brothers talked with him. Oh, pray with me, would you, friends? Oh, Lord God, you've promised that your word is active and alive, sharper than a double-edged sword, able to divide joints and marrow, soul and spirit, discerning the intents and the thoughts of our hearts. God, thank you that your word is so active and alive. It's your spirit's sword. And in that, God, we pray today for the right carving, Lord. We pray today that your scripture would be so, obviously it's alive, obviously it's effective. The issue is, Lord, whether or not we're willing to take it today, Lord, like the penicillin and apply it to those places, Lord, that are diseased. And God, I thank you so much for what you're going to do in this time. Lord, you know every need in this room. You know every fear. You know every victory, every defeat, every regret. Everything in our past we would run from. Everything in our future we're still concerned and anxious over. And in every bit of it, God, you know how to speak in this period of time. Fluent us. That every one of us could be personally addressed. Radically encountering you. And genuinely receive the therapy you intend in this time. So God, I pray pray for every one of us, every one of us, Lord, that we would each today have ears to hear your word, hearts to receive your word. And in that, Lord, as you've told us in Hebrews, that there are those who heard it, but did not mix it with faith. And therefore it profited them not. God, may we have that faith that you promised comes by hearing your word. And God, today, may you take that and radically reach us, radically minister to us, Lord, that we could say, I encountered Jesus today. If there be any within the sound of this voice that have yet to actually accept the gift of Jesus, may this be that time. Lord, for the young, grow them. For the complacent, challenge them. For the rebellious, warn them. For the mature, encourage them. And every person, Lord, in here, that we would radically receive what you desire in this time. So, Lord, for that to happen, get me out of your way. Immerse me in your spirit that I would disappear. Fill me to overflowing with a fresh anointing, God, that you would do through me what I cannot humanly do. And in this time, we commit every moment of it to you. Lord, redeem every second, I pray. And may we have so much fun in your word that we could all just say, wow, what a good God. So we commit this to you now, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Please be seated. It's been a long 20 years. It's been a long 20 years since Joseph, as a boy, received dreams at 17 about how the Lord had put a promise on his life. He had no idea what it would, how it would manifest. All we know is that somehow in all of this, Joseph knew that the Lord had called him to some form of greatness of all things. And of course, he tells his brothers, who in turn are already jealous because he's the father's favorite, sell him to Egypt and assume they'll never see him again. Telling his dad or bringing to their dad. And it's one of those things where you like try to make it seem like you didn't lie when you did, you know, where you're really, I'm not going to say stuff. I'm just going to actively be silent in areas that I know will deceive people. It's still a lie, by the way. And <laughs> bringing a bloody cloak that clearly belongs to Joseph and letting dad come to his own conclusions, we can all agree is lying. And with that, dad comes to the conclusion, oh, 
oh, my son has been torn by beasts. And they even knew that was going to be the case. They knew the moment they would bring that. They said it before that point. That was 20 years ago. Matter of fact, it's 22. Joseph is 39 years old now. I mean, that's a long time. And boy, if there is a guy that is, you would think could get on Oprah with a good right to hold a grudge, here's your boy. Not only had he been sold into slavery in a place where nobody comes back. The two things we learn, by the way, and it's going to be another lesson for another day as we get to it, is that the two things that seem to be hated by the Egyptians... Well, one is Hebrews and the other is shepherds. And, and, and what makes a person come to that conclusion? How do you wind up hating a people group? How do you wind up hating an occupation or a, or a clique or a group? Well, there must have been some form of bad blood, some form of history that makes you come to that conclusion. And, and, and if you recognize that's the theme, that's the sort of general atmosphere, then you can understand what a big deal it would be to sell Joseph off to Egypt because Joseph was both. He was a shepherd and he was a Hebrew. And boy, that's just bad news. You know, you're selling a Capulet. And that's kind of the the idea here. You're sort of, you're handing over someone to those who already naturally hate you. Having complete, no conscience to the situation. And now, here they are in desperate need of grain as a famine has hit the land. And it has brought them down to the one place that they themselves would never have gone by any other purpose. And that's because they weren't welcome there either. They were also Hebrews. They were also shepherds. And now you have to go to a place. And I would imagine their reluctance, first and foremost, has nothing to do with selling their brother off. Though clearly their conscience is, the Lord is not letting them escape that. But but. In that, it's, they're still not wanted, they're still not liked, they're still hated and considered an abomination there. Why would you want to go there? Have you any concept that you could have written such a script that that would be the place you would encounter a brother you sold off 20 years ago to a city as large as London? Like you're going to run into him on the street. Or worse yet, that he's actually the mayor of London, second in command, and nobody gets food unless you go to him. Now, in all of that, and and please hear me out as we get into our text here, because as we're learning from this, and of course, we've talked a lot about how you can draw so many parallels between Joseph and and Jesus. And of course, as God sort of runs us through the lineage to the Messiah, he takes this big diversion through the, the, really, the guy that gets more press than anyone in the book of Genesis, second only to Moses in all of the Torah. And, and, And he's not even a guy that's in direct line to Jesus. God wants to point out a character and a position, I mean, a life that is lived in such a way that we can look and go, there's something about him that isn't in his bloodline, because he's actually, of course, a different son than Judah, but, but rather in his life that's going to say, no, that was going to remind me of Jesus. And God's planting these seeds so that when we get there, we go, oh, it all makes sense to me now. And then I look at this text, and I realize there are four beautiful, profound things that Joseph does that so reminds me of Jesus, and I pray you grab them with me. But please understand, in all of that, God is ministering on a million levels here. And and please never miss this. In our small minds, we want to understand what God is doing in the middle of something, often in those situations that are a little less comforting in us. And here's the most ridiculous thing. And pardon me for just nailing it. We think God has a single answer for anything. This is a God who's running the universe, who's holding every one of your atoms together, who knows your thoughts from afar, 
that somehow can actually make sure that you're going to take your next breath, your heart's going to beat that next beat, your blood's going to flow through those veins, and yet still is going to make sure that the sun doesn't catch something on fire in Iraq. It's still going to make sure that grass grows someplace for cows to eat in Wyoming. That's still going to make sure that rice grows somewhere in Southeast Asia. And we want to go and something hits us and we go, God, I just want to know the reason. You ever do that? The reason for this? Well, please understand, this is a God who is the ultimate and beautiful and divine and perfect multitasker. And if he is, if God were to actually explain any one thing that he's going to do in all of the purposes behind it, our brains would ooze out of our heads. God, I, I don't understand why I got this parking ticket. God, I don't understand why this person's nasty to me. I don't understand why. And it's like, God, if you could give me the reason. And in this situation, God is going to use Joseph to prepare us for Jesus. He's going to use the situation to bring Jacob more to Israel. He's going to use this situation to take 12 brothers, or I should say 11 brothers, and show them the power of a God that could bring a son out of nothing, in their opinion. He's going to use this situation to, in essence, prepare the gospel for Egyptians so that for the next 400 years they could tell the story of this boy that was a Hebrew that was raised up so that nobody could be kept alive unless they went to him and in all of that that's just a few of the things and in that part of this is the focus on the brothers and that's where we're at here with this restoration now let me put it in a way that might make a little sense as we dive into our text If I had the ability to say, you know what? I know you travel public transportation, Gonzalo. So let me tell you what. I could actually give you a free travel pass for the day. He might be like, well, that's that's really cool. Thank you. But there's still that part that thinks, well, I'll celebrate today. But tomorrow I'm still going to need to get another one. Then Juan comes up and says, well, let me tell you what, man. I'm going to help you even more. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you one for a week. Because I was like, thank you, bro. That is really cool. That, you know, and of course, there might be a little bit more gratitude, and rightfully so, because now he's got a week where he could actually go wherever he wants. But then comes next Sunday, and then we have that again. Well, and then, and I won't try to imitate all of you, because I'm sure I'm to insult someone even more than Juan. I can get away with that with Juan. But let's just say that Charlene, and you can see why, comes up and says, well, I can do one for a month. And she gives that to him. And again, Juan is thankful for, for what he's seeing with his brother. Gonzalo's blown away a month. But what if someone were able to come up and say, you know what? You could choose either any of those, or I could give you this pass so that you will be able to travel free for the rest of your life. And all of a sudden, yeah, you know, can you imagine? Some of us are going, oh, that's like a happy place, right? And, and the reason I say that is, is that if, you know, with each one of these, it grows in regards to the amount of need that is met. But one may have woke up this morning and going, I don't even know how I'm going to get to church. And, and we go from that to imagine having some need. And the reason I say that is, is that we can get so caught up in that thing and God, and we're going, God, I don't understand how it is right now that you're going to take care of this need for the day. And this is, seems like such a huge problem right now. And God, pulling away from the whole scene, sees the need and it's eternal, who plays for keeps and sees the big picture of it all and says, let's take care of the need in a big way. Let's take care of the need in entirety. And that's the biggest, one of the biggest things difference, things different? What, what's like English is my second language. I just don't have a first. Um, you know, where it's like one of the biggest differences between what Jesus does, to be honest, and a lot of other things that are called religion. And, and, and please understand, it would still be great to get a day pass. 
But the Bible is riddled with situations where you see somebody that, to be honest, is really struggling with the moment, and God's going to actually take care of the, the bigger problem for good. Oh, deliver us. We want a Messiah. And they're hailing, Baruch Hashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. King, save now. Adonai. You know, save now. And as they're crying out this, Hoshana, Hoshana. I mean, what, they're not asking God to save them from the big picture. They're asking him to save them from Rome. And though that may seem like an all-encompassing eternal problem, it really isn't. And you could deliver somebody from Rome, but then there's going to be someone else that will step in too. But he who sins is a slave to sin. And that's the thing that is bigger. And then the eternal judgment that comes because the wages of sin is death. And the reason I say that is, is that that's what the Lord is doing here with the boys. Their temporary need, and by the way, God will do this often. He'll use a temporary need to deal with the bigger one. Because sometimes, to be honest, God will meet you with a problem right today that will force you to get someplace where you can actually get the bigger need met because you don't, may not even realize that the bigger need is the cause and the little needs the symptom. So it's a marriage in crisis. It's a person that's feeling suicidal. Those are major issues. It's the bondage of some form of addiction. It's every relationship around you seemingly gone awry. It's just feeling depressed. Whatever it is, and on these things are like little surface, and they, they, they're, they're, they're huge because they're huge in the day. But if it causes you to go to the Lord, and in that he can deal with the bigger issue, blessed is the symptom. I mean, if you have cancer that can be treated and removed, you could be completely healed. And it comes to the surface of your skin. And it's embarrassing. Let's say it comes to the surface of your face. And people look and go, what's that big purple thing on your face? And you hate that thing. You hate it because it's embarrassing and it's discomforting and so forth. But if that's the thing that causes you to go to the doctor so that he can look and say, to be honest, you have a bigger problem. And if that hadn't surfaced, you would wind up in stage four cancer where it's too late to be treated. But because that thing came to surface, you were able to get the problem really dealt with so that you could actually live a longer life. Blessed is the symptom. There was a famine. And in this famine, these boys are hungry. It's going to be seven years long. There are two years into it. And that's the symptom. That hunger... That restlessness, that emptiness has brought them to a place where they're going to need to go unaware that they're going to go and deal with the biggest issue, which is that for 20 years, for two decades, they've been carrying the burden of guilt to a brother they sold off. And God will use that famine to deal with the bigger issue. You know why? Because he loves those miserable, rotten scoundrels. Just like he loves these miserable, rotten scoundrels. Just as much. And it's a woman at the well. Who Jesus will get alone with. Who goes to deal with the thirst of the moment. In John 4. And Jesus will say. Go get your husband. And in her honesty, I don't, I don't have one. But you've had five. And the guy you're living with right now, he's just your partner, your mate. You aren't even married. Do you see what he's doing? He took her thirst. And he started by saying, hey, if you 
knew who it was that asked you, you'd ask and he'd give you water that you would never have to go and drink from again. See, your thirst right now is temporary and it will continue to drive you, but there's a bigger need that needs to be met. Now listen, beloved, as we dive into our text, into our four things, into our beautiful text, please know that you are an ambassador for the eternal, not just the temporary. And the church has gotten very blinded. It's to try to look good in the eyes of the lost world. Because if we went out there, preached the gospel, and gave food to a poor person, they would think we did it for a purpose. Hello, we are doing it for a purpose. And we went and we helped plant crops for a place that's ravished by floods or famine or whatever. But we, in our understanding, know how to plant a crop that could grow there and feed these people. And someone says, you're just doing that to get your religion. And you know what? We're so afraid to say, well, why, yes, I am. But I've got to be honest. If somebody really could take a look back and say, you really believe Jesus is the only way? Yes, and you believe if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell? Yes, why aren't you sharing him? Because to me, that's a bigger felony than preaching your gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, because you want to take care of an eternal need by meeting them at their symptom. So we'll toss a, a pound in a guy's coffer so he can go and get himself another malt liquor while we're still silent about Jesus while he tells us that whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. Do it in the name of Jesus. Whatever you do. Try that. Will people be upset? Of course they'll be upset. But you know what? I've learned this from a bus. That's just who I am. Get over it. Anyway, so with that in mind... Gosh, you know, it's funny. It's hate when anyone else says it. Okay, so chapter 45, verse 1. Follow me on this. And by the way, again, whatever symptom the Lord brought you here with today, He's the answer. I I, I can clearly tell you that. And I say that with perfect conscience. Okay, chapter 45, verse 1. Joseph couldn't restrain himself. For what's worth the word again is a feck. A feck is the idea of literally bursting forth. Mount Vesuvius has erupted. The, the word means to contain, to restrain, to hold in. And on you just know sooner or later the dam's going to break, and it has. Now again, remember, Joseph is speaking through an interpreter. They have no concept. They, these boys who have sold them 20 years ago were standing before him, just wanting to get grain so they don't die. And, and there they are in this situation. And, and they just Joseph's been speaking to an interpreter. They're speaking Hebrew. He's speaking Egyptian. And all of a sudden, Joseph's going to turn to them and speak to them in Hebrew. And what a startling moment that is. But first, the first thing he does is he just screams. And he screams again in a language these boys don't understand. He's like, And everybody runs out of the room but the boys. And here I am as one of the brothers. And I'm standing with the guy that has the power to kill me. And everybody else is fleeing. And all of a sudden, the room, like the dust settles. And I'm looking and I go, oh, this is not good. And then I realize what Joseph just did. Is he removed? You see, he's about to reveal, and that will be our second of the four. But in order to reveal, what Joseph was going to do is really, to be honest, what God does regularly. And it's something you will fight him for until you ache. See, there are some times where in order for the Lord to reveal himself the way he needs to reveal himself to you, he's going to have to remove some stuff to do so. He's going to have to remove the world is what he's going to have to remove. 
And what happens is we're so busy holding on to something, we have no idea that the Lord is waiting to reveal, but there is no way we would even understand who he is in his revelation if we're too busy holding on to something of the world. And what I learned from Joseph in my first of these four things is how beautiful it is when God puts you in the one thing you do not want more than anything else, and that's to be alone. Man, you know what? We're so busy trying not to be alone. We'll do that one thing that we feel like will just kind of remind us we're not alone. We'll get an iPod or whatever. Something with headphones. And these days, the bigger the phones, the better. And whatever. Because in that, maybe then I don't even have to hear the fact that there's a world out there. Because I want to be away from everyone, but I don't want to be alone. And somewhere in that, there gets this place where the Lord's going to do something. And it's like, none of your friends will answer their stinking phones. You text them and you're thinking, what in the world is going on? And you know, that's all right. I'll turn on the TV and the power goes out. And you're just like, I don't get it. And you're there and all of a sudden... Three hours later, after you've been ranting and raving, and you've done, you're cleaning your house, you would never do that. You know? And it's, I just got to do something. And someone's got this is going, sit, sit, sit. And you're like, no, 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 I got to, oh, I'll do homework. And you're thinking, no, I know I've got problems. You know? And, and, you know, and you'll do, you're not even in school and you're doing homework. And, and sooner or later, it's like, I've run out of things to do. And the dust settles and I goes, now, can I talk to you now? Amen. And you know, and by the time you're done, you realize I just wasted three hours. Okay, maybe I cleaned up. That was good, but I wasted time because really, what the Lord really wanted to do was say, "Hey, I, I love you." And what's so strange is sometimes the reason we don't want to hear the Lord is we feel like the only thing He has to say is what's wrong with us. Could you imagine that? Listen, I have two children. You've seen one of them. She pulls on my microphone, but the. You, <laughs> In these beautiful, beautiful children, could you imagine if the only thing they thought I had to say to them was something critical? They would want to be out of the house before they turned 13. They wouldn't want to be in the same place. And to be honest, I wouldn't blame them. If the only thing they had was a dad that was busy trying to find faults, and you know what? To be honest, maybe some of you or some of us have been in that environment in our upbringing. Maybe that's what we knew. Well, then no wonder why you're afraid to listen to what the Lord may say. But could you imagine if what the Lord really said was what any loving father would say? I, I love you. I'm just so glad that I get to be with you. And you'd think, well, I can't imagine hearing that from the Lord. Why not? Didn't he make you? And now look at whether you know it or not, Colossians 1 tells us that by Him and for Him all things were created. Jesus made you as an intentional act, and in that intentional act, you were made for Him. Imagine if you could make a gift for yourself. What would you make? Something that gives you massages when you ask for it? Something that cleans your house when you ask for it? Something that cooks your meals no, that's why we get married. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Somewhat. Um, <clears throat> do you think that's why you have kids? We know better than that. You know? But I mean, obviously, you, if you were to make something, you would make something that would bless you. You would make something you'd want to be around. Could you imagine making something that you wouldn't want to be near? Well, who would want to do that? 
I'm going to, and you had the power and all of the wisdom of the universe, and you had all of the consciousness of the universe, and you had all of, you could think everything through, and in all of that, unconsciousness in, in, in regards to understanding, and, and all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to make something that just I hate. Who, who does that? But the idea of saying, you know, I'm going to make something I want to be with, but I'm going to give that thing a will so it can actually respond in love to choose me back. That's powerful. And the reason I say that is, is that Joseph is demonstrating a pretty powerful thing. Now look at this is not a new concept. If you remember in Genesis 32, it was Jacob, by the way. Jacob, wait a minute. That's Joseph's dad who was left alone because he knows his brother's coming with an army of people and he thinks he's coming to kill me. And so he sends everyone in their groups ahead. Remember, it says, and Joseph, and this is the powerful thing, it says, Joseph was left alone, 3224. And that's where he wrestles and that's where he gets the name change and that's where he sees. And I think, wow. God had to get him alone before he would do that? Why? Could you imagine Jacob wrestling in front of everyone else? They'd all jump in and God's like, this is not what I was looking for. It was Exodus 3 where God would have to get Moses alone with the sheep so he could set a bush on fire and not consume it. It was Joshua chapter 5 verse 13 when he'd get Joshua alone where Joshua would ask this angel, are you for us or for our enemy? And the angel says, no. 1 Samuel 21, God would get David alone so he could show them that he was his protector and provider. 1 Kings 18, it was Elijah that God would get alone to show him how he had lost, hear me, hear me, how he had lost focus. Elijah was one who heard and acted. That's what we read about Elijah, Eliyahu. He hears the word of the Lord, comes before King Ahab, who's a rotten, nasty guy, married a rotten, nasty gal, and he says, I tell you what, there's going to be no rain until I say so. And then he runs off, and you could see Ahab going, did that just happen? And, and in that, it's like, it says he, he did it exactly that the Lord pulled him. Stands before the prophets of Baal and Ashtra, 850 prophets of Baal, and he says, God, I'm doing this so that everyone will know I did it just like you told me. If God said it, he did it. That was the Elijah of power. And by the way, so will it be with you. God, just speak it. Let me know it's you. And then give me the courage to do it. There's power in that. But then something radically changes. Because, I mean, of course, the wife, she's not real excited about that. Jezebel, she's got a real issue with this guy because he just killed all the fake prophets on staff. And it says, when Elijah, when he saw her threats. Do you see the difference? First time, by the way, Elijah is motivated by sight. He flees like a little girl. And he runs into a cave and starts throwing a pity party for him and everyone else. That's, well, that's just him. And you get the idea here that God's like, look at, look at Elijah, Elijah, what are, what, are you, what are you doing here? See, God knows. Elijah doesn't. Elijah, come on out. He takes him out and he sits him up on a cleft of a rock. And do you remember there was an earthquake? Oh, the ground's shaking. God wasn't in it. Huge fire. God wasn't in that. Mighty wind. And God was not in all of that. Right, right, right. But what was God in? Do you remember? A still, small voice. You see, 
What did he do? He could feel. He could feel the earth move. He could feel the heat. He could watch the ground shake. All this stuff could be happening. And this is what happens when you're motivated by sight. Is he's going, whoa, look at the ground shake. And look at this. And this is what I'm looking for. God, I need to find that to have it happen. Is that your walk with Christ? God, if you could shake the ground a little bit more, I know you're there. God, if I could feel the heat or the power or the wow. Clearly you must be there. But see, Elijah never had the power in what he saw. Where was God? He was in a still small voice. Do you realize what God was doing? He was getting Elijah back to listening again. But in order to do that, he had to get him alone. Oh, we'd fight it. But it's still the case. Daniel, by the way, gets his revelation of the living God in chapter 10, verse 8. And he says, Therefore I was left alone when I saw this great vision. It'll be Luke 8. Where he kicks all of her people out but the, but the mother and father when he raises the girl. Kicks the world out to do so. It's John 4 with the woman at the well. It's John 8 with the woman caught in adultery. And by the time it's done and everyone has walked away, the woman is left with him and it's there that he reveals. It's the woman at the well and it's there. She says, I know Mashiach, Messiah, when he comes and he says, I'm... How many times in Scripture do you see Jesus just say, I'm the Messiah? To a woman who'd been married five times, now living with a guy at a well by herself. And we read Jesus had sent his disciples away. Could you imagine? That's like, well, that's kind of a lack of accountability in Samaria. They all come back and they're amazed. He's talking. He's having a one-on-one. But by the way, can I just say this? God loves the one-on-ones. You really think that the greatest success in any form of ministry is how many people you stand in front of? When Jesus had a crowd, he taught them because that's what you do. But most of them are going to turn on him anyways. But you just see Jesus is constantly trying to get the one-on-one. You ever wonder why it is some guy like, you know, and I'm going to use a kind of a loose thing here, but I haven't said it yet, have I? Don't just believe me. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. But some guy can't see and he heals him or some guy doesn't know. He's sick and he's got leprosy and he cures him and he cleanses him and then he goes, no, don't go tell anyone. Like no one's going to know notice you know i was like all of you know it's like you know nathaniel was rolled in here with no legs he grows a couple legs and all of a sudden he's like wow i'm gonna need to find like clothing for that and and all of that all of a sudden you hear but but don't go showing anyone or don't go telling anyone i mean the moment he walks by anyone that knows him is going to go what happened to you now why in the world would jesus do that and people have all kinds of ideas but in mark it's something really important because when god does that when jesus does that it says then he says don't do so but the guy ran off and told everyone anyways and then said therefore jesus couldn't enter into the towns anymore so he had to go out see the thing is when that happened he couldn't get the one-on-ones anymore And Jesus wasn't interested in being a rock star. So Jesus, as a pastor, as the good shepherd, which the good pastor, the one-on-one was the the victory for him. Because that's where lives were really changed. And I I just look at that and I think, well, let me ask you, is there any area of your life, because we have to apply this, is there any area of your life right now that the Lord is stripping from you and you are fighting him over it? And what he's trying to do is to get you to release your death grip so that he can speak to you and reveal himself like he really wants to. I mean, I want to be able to tell you God's my provider, but unless God strips me of my securities, and he's done that on more than one occasion, I can't speak with the same confidence. When we left here, there was all kinds of things that were supposed to pad and take care of us that were gone instantly that, we, that really shocked us. But by God's grace, that happened for good reason. I can tell you God provides, and not just in theory, because he's had to provide. I think it was Corey Tenboom who said, you never know that he's all you need until he's all you have. And, and I, I just, I don't like statements like that. I mean, they're beautiful and they make nice 
greeting cards, but they're terrible to have to live by. Anyways, so here's the first two things again. It's removal, and then it's revelation. And that's just the way that God works. If you remember, John left alone on the Isle of Patmos and then gets this beautiful revelation. And it's the only physical description we have of Jesus. And John had to be taken away from everything. This guy was overseeing churches, man. This guy was the bishop of Western Turkey. You tend to think, wow, pull this guy out? Sure. It's Philip in the middle of a revival in Samaria that he has to pull out. And you'd say, well, wasn't that just for the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts? And you say, well, well, it also showed Philip that God saves anyone. Because an Ethiopian wasn't any part Jewish. Contrary to what some people would argue today. I mean, in the, in the sight of a Jewish individual in those days, it's like God really saves the whole world. Yeah, he is the savior of the whole world. I can tell you this. The Lord's not going to remove anything from your life without revealing something more profound about Him. And, and can I just say it this way? To reveal Himself as the thing that replaces the thing He's removing. In your life, in my life, you know, you hear it said a lot, God's not a God of nots, He's a God of instead ofs. But I've learned that one of the most profound things in my personal walk, one of the turning points, was when I realized that Jesus didn't say, I give. He said, I am. Because I'd go to Christ for peace instead of actually asking Him to be it. I'd go to Christ for joy instead of asking Him to be my joy. Because in His presence is the fullness of joy. He's not the storehouse for joy. He's actually joy. I come to Jesus and say, Jesus, can you give me a little bit more love for that person? And Jesus says, I, I'm, I'm love. You're going to have to actually put me in the equation. And I realize why it says in Romans that nobody seeks after God. And you're like, well, there's all kinds of people that seem like they're looking for God. Oh, no. See, they're looking for the things as if he were a store. And if they could get them somewhere outside of Jesus, they would happily do so. Why do people get wasted? Why do people chase after money? Why do people go from relationship to relationship? Because they're trying to find... <coughs> hear me, hear me, hear me. They're trying to find the things that God is without getting it from God. Because then, they don't have to be accountable to an authority in it. They could use it whatever way they want to. And in that, understand, God says, if you're not going to look for me, I'm going to chase after you. 